Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf, as you know, and I'm the host of this show where today we are going to energetically and unapologetically shine the bright light on moments of creative catastrophe and what many refer to as cataclysmic failure, to see what we can glean from the chaos and how it can lead us to a greater sense of living the best version of ourselves. So let's go, let's do this, giddy up. I'm here for it. I'm glad you're here. I wanna start with um, a premise of embracing your un conventional life and why making sense to yourself is all that matters and I'm not even sure that it's really all that important to make sense to yourself um I was in a school recently (laughs) in a, a really conservative town and uh there was uh these students were filing in and there was this one group where this um Kids, so I'm wearing my, you know, my best scarf and shawls and all of my, you know, um, jewelry and everything that I love that makes me feel pretty and special. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding. And uh, this kid looks up at me kind of like uh, he's a little bit like feeling probably a bit awkward or whatever. And he's like, why are you wearing so many rings? And I was just like, oh, my God, I love rings. I started showing him all my rings. And I'm like, I want one more for this finger here or whatever. I'm just so excited. And that wasn't the response he was expecting or wanting. And he's like, what are you wearing? And I missed the beat. You know, you kind of needed to be right on there. But I wished I would have said, like, whatever I want. Because <laughs> that's the truth. I did go into a bit of explanation, you know, about, you know, my fabulous shawl and how much I loved it. But uh, it was really funny because I realized, you know, and to his, to his credit, li- uh, school often just kind of sucks. You know, like you're, you're smashed into this uh, environment filled with all of these other people. Nobody really knows who they are yet and they're trying to figure it out and it's happening at wildly different times and and ages, even a year, six months can make all the difference in the world. And and I think, oh, every time I, I spend so much of my time in schools and I I really do for the most part, you know, I obviously make as much room for everybody as you can, but uh, I really try um, to make a space for the people who are on the fringes, who are on the outside, who are on the, you know, the margins. And you just want to say, it's okay. It's okay being you. It's okay figuring out who you are. And honestly, I feel like I find people my whole life who are, who are in that, that, that tension, who are feeling that tension of like, is it okay to be me? Is it okay to be me now? The older we get, it's like, I I should have been somewhere else, right? I should have been more successful. I should have been something else um, at this age, right? And I come down to this one really simple reality, which has changed my life. And that is really this, no one cares. No one cares. (laughs) No one cares. 
No one cares what you want. No one cares. No one cares what you wear. No one cares if you want to dance your head off at a festival. No one cares if you want to sit in your seat quietly and listen to uh, the music and the nuances of the players. No one cares what you're wearing. No one cares what you're driving. No one cares what you're eating or listening to. No one cares. So why do you care so much? I find it liberating. I don't know. Discuss among yourselves. Standing Nation, um, which we're going to discuss here, uh, because I would love to talk about the beauty of living life on your own terms, uh, as far as that relates to finding purpose in your unique journey. Um, I sat at Standing Nation for over five years. I was a Anishinaabe a powwow drum that was based out of the First People's House at the University of Victoria here in Lekwungen Territory in the city of Victoria. And it was an absolute thrill and an honor to sit at that drum. Our drum keeper was Rob Spade. And I remember a particular conversation I had with him. Uh, he was going back uh, to Ontario for the summer and uh, so he wasn't going to be around. And there was this Indigenous Youth Conference in the Okanagan that had put out a request for presenters. And they had a bit of criteria, like it was great if you didn't need much or any backline or a PA, and if your presentation could be like 30 to 50, 60 minutes, that kind of a thing. And uh, Rob couldn't be there, obviously. But I, uh, I, so I approached him with this idea. Like, I was like, what if, you know, the drummers that were still going to be here, what, what if we went up and did this uh, youth conference as a drum group? And each one of us, we were all just sort of learning the song still, and we were all very, very new at it. But I was like, you know, if every one of the drummers chose one song that they could lead and they could um, talk about, you know, the meaning of the song or where it came from or whatever, like, is that something that we could do? And in talking to him, I didn't know if I was suggesting something really super inappropriate, like culturally or whatever. And... I remember him looking, like, I probably said, like, I don't know if that's allowed. And he looked at me, um, he had this really great way, I, he, he used to look at me in ways that I, I never knew if he was, like, uh, <laughs> super pissed off at me, or if he just thought he was, like, an idiot, or if he was just thoughtful, I don't know, it was, like, it was impossible for me to read Rob back in those days. And uh, he just said, you know, Rick, you don't have to explain or justify your relationship to the drum to anyone. Everyone has their own relationship to the drum. And so you could stand up and you could say, I'm a settler. I was raised in a religious environment um, that taught me that this drum, uh, drums like this and these songs and ceremonies were evil, you know, but... And then he's like, you can explain what the drum means to you. You know, this is how me it's this is how it's helped me walk in a good way. This is how me to understand myself and the world, to connect to all of my relations. And 
the point I really took away from that, well, A, coming from a religious environment where, you know, you had to explain and justify yourself to everyone and everyone had an opinion about everyone and everything. Like I can't even, it's been so many decades, thank God, since I was part of a religious community and, and an environment that had all that kind of judgy foundation to everything. But hey man, anybody who goes online these days sees it everywhere, this sense of othering people who are not like you or who are marginally or even slightly unlike you and what they think or feel or how they dress or believe or who they love, all of these things. And we get this sense like, well, I have to justify myself. I have to explain myself to to somebody. And the people who are judging me the harshest, I, those are the people I really need to focus on convincing that I'm okay. And no, you don't. No, you don't. The point is that your life doesn't need to make sense to anybody but you. And I think that there are times when life doesn't even make sense to us. But if we're listening and if we're aware and kind of in tune with ourselves enough, even though we can't explain why um, something, we know that it's something that's important to us. Let me give you an example. I need... I'm not kidding. It's not, it, it, I need to sing at the top of my lungs every day. Like maybe only for five or 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, depends on the day, but I need it. And I, I live in a community house that's 132 years old. So the house is porous. It's, it's like a fishnet. I mean, just sound transfers and, and floats through this house. And so for me, it's usually at the end of the day, I'm either cooking or I'm cleaning. I'm in the kitchen and I need to sing and I... Uh, I need to crank, and I don't mean like just gently, like, <laughs> I, I really, I need to sing like Zeppelin's Black Dog, or I need to sing Tom Sawyer by Rush, or I need to, you know, like I need to sing something at the top of my lungs. And uh, I just used to think it was me that maybe for all of these years that I used to tour and I would be singing night after night for hours, that it just became sort of a thing. Um, and that's why it was just like habit or whatever. But a few months ago, I was up north in the in the Northwest Territories of Canada, and I met this Dene elder who was talking about how drumming and singing, and he said even screaming and yelling is part of healing. It can bring healing. And and the minute he said that. I understood myself. I'm like, this is it. This is why I need to sing. There's something healing about letting out um, what's going on inside of me through my vocal cords. I didn't know that that's why I needed it. Uh, in that way, my life didn't make sense to me, but I knew what I needed. And I think sometimes that's just the way it is. A huge step towards that would be the liberating, what I would describe as the liberating power of disregarding the opinions of others so that you can live an authentic and happy life. 
I try uh, not to live uh, with regrets. I mean, what's the point? And the regrets that I entertain are <laughs> are honestly um, the ones that spring to mind are concerts and events where I didn't disregard the opinions of others and just run off and live my uh, authentically happy life dancing like a madman. Um, okay, check this out. I'm going to play you a little song, a little excerpt, because uh, this is the Cat Empire uh, group from... Uh, Australia, I think primarily, and they came to Winnipeg and played at the Pyramid Cabaret. Music is a language of our soul. Music is a language of our soul. Music is a language of our soul. Gosh, they were so funky, you know, this funk, reggae kind of uh, uh, Latin-infused sound, and they were just, like, so danceable. And my business partner, Marie say she'd been touring with a different band in Australia, and they'd played at a number of festivals with uh, on, on the bill, you know, at a festival with the Cat Empire. So she knew what they sounded like, and she, when they came to Winnipeg, somebody gave her tickets, and nobody else uh, could go with her, so she invited me, and I went to the Pyramid, and here's this band, and it's packed. And that night, man, from the minute they started, oh, it was just so great. The band hits the stage. I always love, you know, the way uh, a great performer can draw you in instantly and and create a sense of community and camaraderie with the audience with the audience and kind of break down that that um invisible barrier that exists between artists and audiences and the really great artists can just like make that just feel like it doesn't exist and so these guys start you know they come out they got this cool groove going the bass and the the DJ and the drummer and and there's kind of all this stuff and the lead singer he's got his back to the crowd he's facing the drum kit and then he he turns around and the band starts swelling and as he comes storming towards the front of the stage and he's just like yeah and the whole crowd's just like wow and just before he gets to the front of the stage he turns and he walks back to the drum kit and the band, instead of swelling into this crescendo, they also drop back. And he does this about three or four times and as if they were going to build it in and just kick it off into this amazing, you know, opening act, opening song. And it was just so it was so funny. And you knew immediately what he was doing. He was just playing around with this expectation of like how to be a big rock star and he hit the stage like that. And and he was just playing around with it and everybody was laughing and dancing. And man, from that very first song, I wished I had just like jumped out of my seat and just ran out into the dance floor and just danced all night long. But I was there with MJ and she wasn't dancing. And I know now she couldn't have cared less if I would have gone and done that. But because I have, uh, I had this, you know, the opinions of others and uh, whatever they, their expectations of me may or may not be. And I was just like, well, uh, I guess I have to sit here. And I sat there the whole night, didn't dance. Every song was danceable. And uh, yeah, there's a regret. <laughs> there's a regret, you know, not a big serious one, but just like 
Uh, yeah, I really wished I would have danced that night because those guys were fantastic. It was funny because a couple years later or whatever the timeline is, I can never remember, uh, Michael Franti and Spearhead came to the Winnipeg Folk Fest. And, uh, and I'd learned my lessons. So I went with again with a big group of friends and there's like 40,000 people or whatever there and everybody's throwing out their blankets and we find a spot to throw out our blankets and to bring out all of the, the food and everything else. And once the music hit, well, man, when Michael Franti hit the stage and if you've never, if you don't know who that is or if you've never heard him, and he's just so positive and playing a show like that with uh, Spearhead, I mean, it went from funk to reggae to acoustic to rock to ska. It was just like they put together this beautiful set that was so diverse and it was all about optimism and and making a difference and and I had learned that lesson from the Pyramid Cabaret and the Cat Empire and I was like my friends all and they were and at that moment they seemed content to just sit there on the ground on their blanket and I'm like there's no way I want to let this moment go without dancing. And so I was just like, hey, see you guys later. If I don't catch you, you know, in the crowd, I'll meet you back at the car. And I just took off. And you know what it's like when you're in a, a when you're in a crowd of 40,000 people or thousands of people. And there's just this wonderful sense of anonymity. Uh, you're surrounded, but you don't care. And there's just this fun energy. Man, that was one of my best memories of any festival or, or live performance just because I, I gave myself that freedom to be me, to be what I needed and wanted and how I wanted to respond to that moment. And I think that's the best thing that any of us can do for our mental health and well-being is breaking from society's expectations and giving that power to ourselves to follow our own path, to dance, to scream, to yell while we're making supper or whatever. Cause, and why should we do that? Because no one cares. No one cares if you go dance. No one cares if you sing while you're making supper. No one cares if you write and record songs about your little puppers. No one cares. And instead of being depressing, that is awesome. It's so ex it's so exciting. Um, this isn't one hundred percent related to that, although I kind of feel like it is. I recently just heard uh, Matt Damon. He was in an interview. This I think was from many years ago. Um, ben Affleck sitting right beside him, and he, they they tell this story. Or Matt tells this story. One of the most profound things <laughs> that anybody's ever said to me when he was 20 years old, we started writing Goodwill Hunting, and he said, hey, judge me for how good my good ideas are, not how bad my bad ideas are. And mm -hmm. that, to me, is the most important thing when you embark on a collaborative mm -hmm. process with somebody. It's like you got to get the, the window open to throw every idea in there and, and not be afraid to have ideas, because we all have ideas. And sometimes right. you mm -hmm. need to idea and then you iterate on that Absolutely. and then they iterate on that and then yeah. it builds into a good idea but you have to feel free to Thanks. express it that's right safe exactly i mean man that really jumped out at me the whole thing about i mean judging ourselves judging others but 
from somebody who creativity, you know, as a mentor doing these um, creative mentorship projects, you know, using um, songwriting and performing and recording and slam poetry and video uh, production, using these things um, as opportunities for mentorship. I mean, the process of uh, creativity, it, it requires, it demands taking risks, uh, stepping out, trying something for the first time. That meme that I love from so many years ago that said, you know, be brave enough to suck at something new. Honestly, that that to me is a, one of the most important things in being creative is, is sometimes you're going to suck. Sometimes you're going to try to find that note and you won't. Sometimes you're going to try to find that beat and it will evade you. Sometimes you, you try your best and it's just not good enough for yourself, you know, but when you have, and so to create that safe place for somebody to take a creative risk, it's one thing to ask like myself, if I've done it for my whole life and I, I've had the experience of things working out, not working out, and I know enough about the process that I'm not going to judge myself, that's one thing. I, I still need a safe place to some degree. Um, but for somebody who's lacking in confidence or not feeling safe, who doesn't feel like they're coming from a place of strength, you have to create a safe place for them to take a, a, a creative risk. In, in fact, our relationships, our homes, our, our bands, our communities, whatever it is, I mean, you have to create a safe place for people to step out and, and be authentic uh, and to share the best versions of themselves and all of their questions. So um, I thought that was really um, amazing. Uh, and it brings me to something I remember reading many years ago that I think has affected all of us. I, I really like this. So I remember um, Chuck Klosterman. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books, but uh, there was this book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And I read it, you know, many, many years ago. But he was talking in there about reality TV shows. I think it was MTV. I don't know if it was Big Brother or, or what the show was, the real world or real life or something like that. But he was talking about how this reality TV of the early 90s created these archetypes that we saw all of a sudden in every kind of um, makeup of every little group. There was like the jock and the blonde and the gay friend and the, you know, the, the person of color. And, and they just really boiled the whole diversity of society and, and humanity down into these five or six archetypes. And, and in that creation for their TV, we were all encouraged to identify who we were in the show and then be that, you know, they were going to represent for us in this sense. And I, in my own journey, I can see many times when I've been looking for language to describe who I am, like, like I need to defend my quirkiness or, um, ways in which I deviate from the archetype that I'm encouraged to identify with. And I, I remember when we first all started carrying around phones and iPods in our pockets, and we were able to compile our own playlists. And 
everybody. I just remember, no matter where you went, everybody wanted to point out how diverse their musical interests were. They're just like, you know, I got like some rap and some country and a bit of metal. <laughs> everybody was like so proud of the diversity of their musical playlist. But the reason it seems strange and weird was because of the homogenized playlists of mainstream radio stations at the time that played a never ending stream of bands that sounded exactly like each other. You know, people talk about, you know, how Nickelback is the most hated band uh, in the world or one of them or whatever. Uh, at that time, man, Three Doors Down and Nickelback, and there, there was, it seemed like there was a number of new rock radio stations that you could barely tell the difference between one and the next. They sounded exactly the same. So, um yeah, the, the idea that we could express some sense of our own identity and the fact that we didn't all just want to listen to one genre of music. We didn't all want to listen to songs that all fell within like two beats per minute of each other. Like, uh, we love diversity. We love uniqueness and quirkiness in ourselves and in others. And I think that's one of the, the, the reasons I find it so liberating and encouraging that no one actually cares. Do what you want. Do what's going to make you feel amazing. And I'll tell you why. I have to quickly share uh, something that just happened. Um, so a couple nights ago, I saw Anne Muller. Ooh, somebody I follow on Instagram, this indigenous designer out of Winnipeg, had this really great collaboration with an artist who had done these amazing feathers. And uh, so I created, I was like, oh, I want to do something that would, you know, be in my own, basically being creative and having fun. Uh, some of you might like to watch Netflix um, or, or read a book or something. Sometimes I just want to create something that has no commercial appeal or, or really any intent other than just having fun creating it. And so I, I went to Canva, if you know what that is, and I found uh, one of the s social media kind of templates that they have that looked like... Um, a text conversation back and forth. And I went and got her logo from her company and I put it in, you know, for her responses. And I put my own little picture in profile picture for my thing. So you could tell in this like back and forth. And I wrote this stupid little exchange about, um, me saying to her in this text message, oh, I love your design so much and I want to buy it. And it's like, you know, I want to feel pretty and what and whatever. And it was this funny little thing. And then I called her a saucy little minx in this text thing. And I, I put it together and I posted it as a story on Instagram. And I was just like, it was, for me, I was just like having fun. And I tagged her in it so that she could see it. And hopefully she thought it was funny. And that was really it. And then... Uh, the next day, yesterday, I sat down to start working on this episode, and I was like, you know what? Uh, um, 
I inherited this old harmony guitar. It's out of tune. The action is just terrible, and that's what I love about it. It's all clangy and and twangy, and I, I pulled it down off of the, the wall to just to play it, and, and this little groove came, and all of a sudden it was like some of these lyrics from that were built around a saucy little minx came together, so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take an hour. I'm just going to... So I wrote a bunch of lyrics um, just down there about being a little saucy little minx. And I kind of related to what we're talking about and what I was talking about in this episode about dancing. Um, I like this. This song came to me and I was like, I'm a dance floor baby. Um, Like I'm a baby of the dance floor. Like that was where I was conceived and uh, it's in my kind of genetic code. And I like this so much that I like, Oh, I'm going to record this. So I take this crappy old guitar, write these lyrics, find a melody, uh, dial up my program, record it, um, put it all together. Then I have a 360 camera that you can really manipulate the image. And I started thinking, oh, one of the funniest things is when you manipulate the image and you have a giant head. And uh, so I'm like, I should just dance in the studio here with right in front of the camera so that I can enlarge that. And I had probably an hour and a half or two hours of the most fun just embracing my own kind of creative way my brain was working. Oh, grab this, grab Canva and grab this like some make a text image story and make that go with this and put it up over here and then like write some lyrics, find a melody in this old guitar, record that, put that with this visual like for me. That was more fun than I would have had watching anything on Netflix. And I've realized, you know, over the years, there were people that would be like, oh, Rick, I don't know how you have the time to do all these stupid things that you post. And the idea is, oh, like there was always that bit of shame, like, oh, really? Am I am I so am I too old to be having fun? Am I too old to be creative? Am I too old to do something that makes me laugh and have fun in my own studio? It's like, is that something I should be ashamed of? And then what's the what's the insinuation? Oh, people at our age, we're doing serious things. We're like, like working on our financial portfolios, you know? I guess that's the voice that people use with uh, financial portfolios. Obviously, I don't work on mine because I don't even know how to talk about it without adopting a voice that's not my own. But that to me, this little song and this little way, I got to play it for you. And then, uh, yeah, here we go. All right. Anyone out there feeling like a saucy little minx? Just me then. comes down to listening to your heart. And that's, in my experience, the key to living a fulfilling life. The importance of being true to yourself 
is because it's the only way to navigate life's uncertainties with any sense of confidence, maybe even optimism. You know, the freedom of, of unapologetically living your truth and celebrating your unconventional path. You know, I remember um, many years ago now, I made the conscious decision to reveal um, my life and the way I approach my life to my parents, mostly to my dad. And I knew it wasn't going to make sense to him. I knew um, I barely made sense to myself at that point in my life. But I realized that if I didn't try, uh, I wasn't going to have anything to talk about because the way I processed life and thought about life and was figuring it out was my life. And if I was like, well, my dad won't be able to handle it or he'll judge me or whatever, um, what am I going to have to talk to him about? The weather? Like, Nothing, right? So they came to Winnipeg to visit us way back in the day. And I remember we went out for coffee and I sat down and I started that way. I'm like, I need to tell you something. And before I begin, I, I need to acknowledge that I don't think it's going to make any sense to you at all. And, uh, and it might just sound like the craziest thing ever. But if I don't tell you that this is how I'm approaching life and how my brain works, um, what are we going to have to talk about? And I want to be able to talk about my life with you. And then I started in, and you know, at that time, <laughs> it was probably like there was a time in my life. I'm sure it was then too. If I had a dream, not every dream, but well, and probably every dream. If I woke up and I remembered a dream, I would probably write it down. I had, I had these journals, these massive journals, and I would, I would, uh, I would write the whole dream down. And I would try to discern what that might have meant. And I never knew, you know, I had this working theory. Uh, is the dream coming from somewhere so far outside of me, like the vast cosmos of space and the stardust that I, you know, where I was formed? And is this like the universe trying to communicate something to me and my, my, uh, my little brain, you know, that's uh, functioning here in this mortal frame? Or... Is it something mysteriously so deep down inside of me that, uh, that it's just bubbling to the surface and then it's like I'm actually, it's more like mining instead of outer space. <laughs> Am I going deeper into myself? And if I read a book or I watched a movie and there was a line of dialogue that seemed to like go with this like quote from a book or if there was a movie or a random conversation with a stranger or if the clock was at 2.22 every single day and I saw or, or whatever, like I, all of these things were these like puzzle pieces that my brain was trying to construct that I would, I would, uh, <clears throat> uh, let me give you an example. Um, cause I just told this story recently, which is why I remember it. Uh, cause this was definitely from a, a time of my life back then. So I'm living in the downtown, uh, part of Winnipeg and I've come kind of, it's, you know, I was raised in a super religious environment that really took hold. It took years to kind of extricate myself from looking at the world that way, or essentially feeling like the judgment uh, that God was going to judge me and send me to hell if I stopped going to church or, you know, whatever. And I, uh, so I had processed this for years as a young adult. Finally, I was like, oh my God, I'm finally, yeah, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm fine. I can leave. I can go. I'm going to be happy. 
And I had this dream. And in the dream, um, there was a um, kind of an inner city uh, religious organization that I'd sort of been uh, affiliated with on the fringes for years, kind of in a musical capacity. And uh, they had this building right on the in the north and right on Main Street, kind of in the... Oh, I wish I remember what the name of the cross street was. But anyways, it was North Main, tough part of the city. And I had this dream where I was standing on the stage in that building, totally empty, just me. And I hear this voice, which I attribute in my dream world to being God. And this voice of God says, you know, hey, well done, Rick. I'm proud of you. Way to go. Uh, you offered everything, you know, that gave in your hands to do. And for me, that meant all the musical kind of stuff the, that I'd been doing in this kind of church religious um, uh, institution or structure in whatever capacity. It was like, then the door kicks open. Sutherland, maybe that's the name of the street, kicks open to the to the street right out there. And it was where the prostitutes were working. And across the street, there was this crack hotel. And and there was just all of the poverty and all of the kind of the misery out on the street of the North End. And this voice says, but it's time to run. Catch me if you can. And I woke up and I was like, oh, that's it. I'm done with religion. I'm done with church. That was God telling me to go. Like, uh take my music and take everything, just get out in the city and go do it. Now, (laughs) whether it was or whether it wasn't, whether it was from the stardust of the cosmos or deep within my, you know, DNA, I don't know, I don't care. Um, And honestly, it was just how I was feeling at the time. But I had this dream that put it into perspective. So that's the kind of thing that I'm going to try to tell my dad and, and did tell my dad. And oh, my God. Like, to his credit, he must have been sitting there going, like, what planet is this kid from? Like, where where did he come from? And how in the world is he, like, managing to pay his mortgage when he's thinking of life like this? But that was a beautiful moment for me because I owned it. I owned um, the, the freedom. And when I say the freedom uh, to unapologetically live my own truth and celebrate my unconventional path, there is a, uh, a freedom in terms of the right. I have the right to do that. I also have the responsibility to do that. Nobody can do that for me. Nobody can step out. And I had two experiences recently that kind of, they're... They were so unexpected. One, it was with a it was a night that I got to spend with a group of old friends that I hadn't seen for years. And I was really looking forward to it. And we got together and it was one of the most depressing nights I've had meeting up with old friends because um everybody was living in the past or so deep in the shadows cast from the past. Um that that was really all there was to talk about. And it was still, you know, ancient history was still writing the perspectives on now, on the present and the future. And it was framing everything. And I, and as it went around the room and everybody was sharing their stories, I was like, well, this is really super depressing. And I realized, yeah, that you have the freedom 
to regret whatever you want. You have the freedom to carry your past around like as much as you want. You can tie that up on your back. You can wear that and the shame and the regret, or you can do whatever you want, but nobody, you know, can can liberate you from that. And if you want the freedom, it is not only your right to embrace that, but it is your responsibility. So that was depressing. I came home, I was telling my partner about that. I was like, geez, you know, I hope that I'd rather be alone, (laughs) which I pretty much am. I'd rather be alone and lonely rather than be surrounded by that. Well, then if you wouldn't know it, a short time later, another old friend rolls into town and I had a bit of apprehension about getting together because I'm like, oh, this is just so friggin' depressing. This individual was completely different. They they were embracing the questions of life. They were happily sharing the failures and the confusion of pursuing their dreams and building their dreams day by day right this week. They were asking questions that I couldn't answer, questions I hadn't even thought about. And we had fun diving into some of those endless questions. And, man, it comes down to this this point, I, I definitely know, you know, um, the type of person from these experiences that I want to be. I want to live with purpose uh, on my own terms and create a life that's meaningful to me because nothing else matters. Nothing else is, else is worth our time and our energy. You know, and when we get together and nothing is off limits, because failures are as full of life as successes, maybe more so, like Matt Damon was saying, you know, in his quote, you know, it's like sometimes those failures, it's sometimes those bad ideas are what lead to kind of seeing something from a different um, perspective and kind of coming around it and eventually leading you to clarity or to success. And, you know, what we don't know in my humble opinion, is as fascinating as what we do. I So be weird, you know, be creative, be a jumbled mix of tastes and preferences, embrace your nuances and contradictions, don't apologize for your path or your journey or what turns on the lights inside of you. We're not the same, we're not meant to be. For my part, I'm going to promise you right now, and if my housemates are listening, I'm really sorry, but I I'm going to continue singing Zeppelin's Black Dog while I'm making supper. I'm going to keep wearing my fabulous flowy scarves and shawls and writing songs about my puppers and chasing my creative dreams around the Arctic Circle each year because that's me, right? And if that doesn't fit, who gives a rip? No one. No one cares. (laughs) Oh, it's such a liberation. Oh, it's such a joy. (laughs) Oh, my God. What do we say? When I say we, I mean me. We, me, I say being creative is a mindset, man. It's a a lifestyle that produces an energy that empowers resiliency and the confidence to face the challenges that life throws at us. And that is process creates momentum and it's that momentum or lack of it that I want to share with you through these episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, 
you're welcome. I don't even know how, because I don't know where you're listening to this, but feel free to leave a comment or ask a question, um, because I love people sharing wherever it is that they're at. So I'm all, you know, all over the socials that you can't get away from, so find me somewhere. Or if, you know, there's a comment thread on this show or whatever. Oh, I don't even know what's going on. I just, I like conversations, okay? I like conversations with people who are confused and with people who have clarity. And I love people who wear scarves and beautiful flowy things. And I love rings. And I love, oh, I really love writing songs and stories and slam poetry. Why am I doing this? I was almost done. And now I'm like down a tangent. But you know what? I don't care because you don't care because nobody cares. So if that's what I wanted to talk about right at the end of all things, well, that's what I'm going to do. Anyways, remember, friends, you're capable of infinitely more than you give yourself credit for. So until next time. <laughs>